Hi, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Cove. I'm Peter Mackett. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mackett. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Spoon from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashirin and you're listening to Not the Footish. Yep. Yes, you're indeed listening to another podcast of Not the Footy Show. I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lee. And hopefully you'll enjoy our guests coming up and uh, also the conversation between John and I. Well, John, I'm going to touch on probably the Rugby World Cup first. It's getting to the serious part of the competition. There's a few interesting things come out of it. Like uh, the first thing is, can you believe of all the quarter finalists... The only team in the quarterfinals with all of their players born inside the country they're representing is Argentina. Well done to the Argentinians on that. It shows that they're prepared to uh, invest in their own structures and their own talent rather than having to look elsewhere to fill gaps and holes. And do you know how far back you have to go to find the last team to win the World Cup? Rugby, this is with all of their players born in the confines of the country they're representing. Has it ever been done? Uh, yes. Uh, New Zealand in the first one? I've not checked that, but 1995, it's the amateur era, and it was South Africa South, yeah. in 1995. So, which is interesting, I think, that now in the professional era, we're seeing more of these, do we call them mercenaries, or people taking advantage of dual citizenship and opting for another nation. Opportunity, and especially for a lot of the islanders, it's economic opportunity, not necessarily a sporting opportunity. Now, interesting. But one thing that's really kind of aggravating me during the World Cup <laughs> is the time it's <laughs> taking on the uh, TMO decisions, the, the third match officials' d- decisions. Like, I think now, and I, I mean, I've been in it, the position as a commentator with hockey, and I, I just think it's too long. And when you watch the cricket now, you know, you have to check for the no ball. Then you have Snicko, Hotspot. And then you also have the actual vision of what's happened. And it's just someone said to me, oh, but the fans love it because it builds suspense. But I think it only builds suspense for 30 seconds, 45 seconds. If you start going over a minute, the fans start losing interest. I don't know that it does build that much excitement amongst fans. I think you can say that because, oh, listen to them here, cheer, listen to them cheer when the ref makes... Well, they've already cheered because their players crossed the line. It's it's just the same cheer, but you've cut it in half almost. Yeah, I, I just think it's taking way, way too long. Now, I know the officials want to get it right, and I know that there's so much money riding on some of those decisions for the teams taking part, but there should be a rule that if you cannot make a decision within a set period of time or the footage is inconclusive, then bang, you know, we go back to the pitch and we play on with things. Yeah, uh, and the umpire or the referee should be in a position where they make their call first before it goes to the the third officials and the video refs, they should say, I believe this is what happened. I believe this is the result. Now, you've got the evidence up there. You go away and have a look at it and then tell me if I'm wrong. And that, But that way, if the guy in the video booth gets 30 seconds in and goes, geez, I can't really tell here, bang, straight back to the umpire. What did you call? Beauty, we're away. And let's face it, a lot of the time, these guys are getting it right anyway. It, especially during the NRL final series, there were a lot of calls that the umpires got right. And the, and the ones that they did get wrong, it, it was such a split, minute, second nature to it that you can understand how they got it wrong. 
It's, that's like if you go back to cricket when video referral first came in and you had the umpires like Dickie Bird, David Shepherd, uh, Steve Buckner even, who didn't go to the referral. They trusted their judgment in that they'd been doing it for so long, they'd stood out in the middle, and then they were encouraged that they must go to the referral because it built this thing in the live audience. Yeah, but right. how many times were they right? Their decision was bang on the money. And... See, the, in, especially in cricket, they were. This system was designed for howlers, absolute monties of wrong decisions. Whereas a lot of the time, we're seeing really, really marginal decisions being adjudicated on it, and that's not what the system was designed for ever. And if if it's good enough for using it in the moment that you cross the line, isn't it good enough to use it across the field during the whole state of play? Like surely a, a, an infringement that you, a referee misses at the halfway line can be just as crucial to a score being produced as one right on the try line. So they've got to figure out exactly how they intend to use the system a bit better. Yeah, we'll move on now. And uh, John, I just wonder if how you feel, you know, <laughs> you're very patriotic for Western Australia. Um, I've written a piece on the blog, notthefootyshow.com, about how more and more teams of all ages in this state are having to pay to represent Western Australia. How do you feel about that? Well, at the top level, the elite level, it's an absolute disgrace. Now, even when I was playing juniors, kids that got selected in rep teams, they'd have to fork out some money to get away with some. that rep team. Some. Some money. And they'd generally be billeted. Kids would be billeted. Even senior players would be billeted when they went to these interstate carnivals. They weren't racking up huge hotel bills along the way. But to me, the key thing you say there is some. Yeah. Now, I've been told that there were some juniors who were being f asked to pay $3,000 to represent Western Australia in a tournament over East. These were under 15 children. And you think, again, they'd be billeted or they'd stay in a dormitory. The airfares wouldn't be as expensive as you and I as adults. No. So I'm just wondering, where's that $3,000 going? But to me, if the sporting body hasn't got the sponsorship, then do fundraising activities, which is what used to happen in the exactly. past. You would go out there and you would assist and it make it easier for the parents. But when you're asking these parents now to pay 750 or $1,000 to play junior sport, and then you're saying, if you're lucky to be selected, we want another two, $3,000, parents don't have that money anymore. And, but what's happening is instead of picking the best athletes, you're only picking those athletes who can afford to play. Yeah. And that's not going to be good in the long term. You wouldn't think so. I mean, where does the money go? You brought it up. It, it costs a hell of a lot more to play junior sport now than it did when I was a kid. And that's even pro rata taking in inflation and all those sorts of things. And so you could understand these organisations were amateur. They were run essentially by amateurs. So you could understand why there was a need that they needed help financially. But not in the modern era. How many staff do they have at Hockey WA? And I, I, the one that used to irritate me is people being asked to buy their uniforms or pay for their kit for the tour. Mate, you should be supplying that. The, 
the sport should supply their representative uniforms. Well, that, that has happened in one of the sports that I mentioned on the blog. And, and again, they have Nike as one of their sponsors mm -hmm. on their website. Now, surely when you're negotiating a deal with a company as big as Nike, you would say to them, OK, part of this deal is you will supply kit for our under-11s, our under-12s, or however many teams you've got that you're planning to have represent the state, be it amateurs, semi-professionals, whatever. And you say, part of the deal is you give us this amount of kit. To me, that's logical. I mean, it's kind of obvious. I wonder now if some of these sports administrators just don't like the idea of Nike being seen as their sponsor and, and are quite prepared to roll over for a lesser deal just because they, oh, Nike sponsors us. It <sighs> seems incredible. And imagine being a 15-year-old kid, okay? You're selected to play for the state and there might be, a, oh, we might need a bit of financial help to get you there and your parents say, don't worry, Johnny, it'll be all good. And, and then they turn around and go, oh, by the way, you have to buy your uniform as well. You're hardly representing your state. And that sort of thing does leave a sour taste in young kids' mouths. They go, oh, you care that much. I've got to buy it myself. Well, the sport you care about, hockey, yeah. the, the women's team, the Diamonds for WA mm. playing in the Australian Hockey League, had to pay, I think it was $1,200 to represent Western Australia. Now, you're asking some of those team members are Olympians. They've got Commonwealth gold medals. And I think that's insulting personally to them. And it's insulting to everyone. If you're at the highest level possible in this state and you're having to pay to represent the team is wrong, for one. But also what's happening now, and I've spoken to a few of the people involved, and they're saying, well, I'm not going to pay next year. Simple as that. So what's going to happen is exactly whereas we're saying the, those who have the money will be playing in other sports, you're going to see the cream of the crop are just going to say, well, I'm not going to play because I don't agree with this. And so, again, lesser players who maybe don't deserve that opportunity. So you're devaluing the honour of representing Western Australia. If we oh, can't there'll be plenty that can afford it that'll do it, won't pay on principle. They'll just go, no, that's wrong. Well, I, I, I know one of the Wallaroos refused to play in the Sevens tournament because they were asked to play by uh, WA Rugby. She then was suspended from playing for a club for refusing to pay. Now, again, that to me is wrong. If, if you're an international, it's insulting, I think, for the state body to ask you to pay to represent your state. Well, I think it's insulting to all hockey players that our elite women's team was asked to fork out money to represent us, considering the amount of money that does swirl around hockey WA and seems to just end up in the drain somewhere. <laughs> but it, but it how it appears to hockey people. But it raises to me, John, a major issue. Is if Western Australia cannot afford to oh. compete on the in tournaments on the East Coast, then maybe we've got to say, okay, we can't. But we start looking to play in Singapore, Malaysia, and let's look to Southeast Asia. But if if it is seriously a financial issue that we cannot afford it, we should be either lobbying the governing bodies, which are all on the East Coast, saying we need help or we're going to have to withdraw and look to Asia. Personally, what I think is in, is in peril is the AIS being here. Because, you know, what point? why would you send your kid to Perth to be in the AIS? And why would the Australian Hockey Federation want the AIS in Perth when there's obviously the sort of financial stranglehold on the game that doesn't appear to be on the East Coast? Why would you have them play over here? 
<laughs> We've raised that many times before. Which would be sad for hockey because Australian hockey's been tremendously successful with the AIS based in Perth. Tremendously. It's probably the most successful unit at, at the Institute of Sport. Maybe next to swimming? I think, yeah, it probably would be. As far as results go over a long, long period of time. Anyway, we should probably turn our attention to our guest for this show. And uh, Marty Fitzsimmons is our guest. He's from the Midwest Sporting Academy up in Geraldton. Marty Fitzsimmons, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Thank you, Ashley. Pleasure to be here. Well, the reason we're talking to you is to find out a little bit more about the Midwest Academy of Sport. Maybe uh, you can tell us of the area, first of all, that you cover in the Midwest Academy of Sport. So we cover the um, the entire sort of Midwest. So we head out uh, to Waluna and uh, and uh, Sandstone and some smaller places in the east of the state. North, we actually, um, the way that the Department of Sport and Recreation boundaries go, we kind of head up to uh, Kalbarri in the north, uh, heading Dongra, Lehman uh, and um, Durian Bay to the south and then inland covering cities, uh, towns like uh, Minganew and Morrowa. Um, but we also have a project on at the moment that's taking in what's called the Gascoigne region. So we've actually got connections up through into Exmouth and Carnarvon as well at the moment. So it's a pretty big area geographically, which is one of the great challenges, of course, population-wise, not that many people. In that whole region, you're probably looking at about 50,000 people. Um, oh, no, sorry, a bit more than that, probably 65, 70,000 people. Um, spread over an enormous uh, distance. So that becomes one of the challenges, of course. I'm sure it does. And, uh, I mean, it's not been going that long, the academy up there, has it? No, the first year of operation was 2014. Uh, uh, Probably about three years of hard labour and and, uh, a lot of blood, sweat and tears went into trying to create and get get the the reality of of it launching. So launched in 2014. And uh, obviously this has been the second year of operation that we're coming towards the end of now. And what is your goal there? Is is it to sort of unearth talented athletes that may go on to become Olympians or stars in the A-League or the AFL? Look, it's um, the, the the purpose of the of the organisation written coming from the, the you know the, the documents is to provide an exceptional home training environment for talented Midwest athletes. Broadly stated, what we're trying to do um, is is to create an environment that will allow someone in the region, in this region, if they're talented enough to go forward and, and realise their dreams. Um, we are a pre-elite, if you like, uh, organisation where. We're trying to set them up with things additional to um, what they would get in terms of hockey training, you know, stick training or football training or cycling training, sports-specific training. We can add the other the, the value adds like sports psychology and strength and conditioning and nutrition and some other things that perhaps athletes, and particularly in the metro area, have a greater access to. So we want to uh, remove some of the disadvantages for a regional athlete. And in doing that... Um, try to uh, keep them in the area. So it's, it is a, a further plan to this is to sort of make the Geraldton and Midwest area more attractive to people so they don't feel compelled to leave if they think their child's good at sport, not getting enough here, they have to go, which is a reality that does happen. We want to try and reduce the amount of travel that people have to do. It's about 430 k's each way. Some people, um, my old boss, 
told me a, a good story that his dad used to take him to cycling training twice a week during the week. So they would go in the afternoon um, to training in the evening. His dad would get off early, go training in the evening, and then drive back late that night or early the next morning while he slept in the car and then go to school and they'd do that twice a week for a period of time so you could train. Um, an extreme story, but that's part of the part of the reason for the existence of the of the academy, sorry, is to is to try and reduce that, provide an environment here that enables them to continue to progress at the commensurate level without having to, you know, do all that travel. That is one of the key things, isn't it, with country areas, you find that there are so many parents who've contributed so much in terms of the travel for their children to have those opportunities? Massively, yeah, massively. I, it astounds me still. Um, talking to people, I, you know, they must know every sort of line marking on that road, on the Brand Highway, I think, because they do. It, look, there's a great community feel about that at times because parents share uh, driving duties. And, and I think one of my great, great hopes is, is in this organisation that we can capture and leverage off the intent and the you know that, that takes a significant effort to do that and a will and then to be able to provide now some more uh, science and some other background you know keep the the effort and the and the will and the drive that these people and their parents and what they're willing to do for the young athletes is but then provide that you know a little bit of an edge to it here and just add add some more to that and probably utilize because I think you know country athletes are often known for being a bit tougher they play a variety of sports and, and, and things like that. Um, so keen to try and leverage off that, I think, and, and keep that spirit alive, but perhaps reduce the number of times they have to get on the highway. The other thing that you mentioned there, and to me it's a key issue, is you want to try and keep some of these athletes in the region uh, for the time being. We see it across the world where um, young, talented athletes are taken away from their homes and moved either across the country or to another city. And some of them can do it, but some of them really struggle. Is this, again, why you're trying to offer these services so that they only go when they're really ready? Definitely. Yeah, definitely, Ashley. Yeah, that, that's the key thing, preparing them for that move. Ideally, that's why you know, the, the term pre-elite comes into it because they haven't actually made the grade yet, but there are so many little elements that other athletes can be exposed to that they just have an understanding of. Like I said, um, psychology and some the nutrition side of things, looking after yourself, probably seeing yourself as an athlete. Um, so that's what we're hoping to do is, you know, really, so when they do transition from from the Midwest to a higher level, uh, they're really ready for it, you know, and can do it as well as anyone else can, and both mentally and, and, and physically, you know. And the other thing we do, we run a, a coaching effectiveness program. So we have a scholarship program for coaches as well. So what we're trying to do there is to more broadly affect sport in the region, uh, coaches and officials. The officials program is really small at the moment, but we figure that if we can affect positively impact on a coach and their ability to coach and the way they treat young athletes, and some of these little ancillary things like you know the sports science and stuff, and give them a greater awareness, then they go and coach another twenty or thirty kids, and and they also have an assistant coach with other people in their club. So you know our, we can permeate out into the to the environment, the sporting environment in Geraldton and, and thereby try and increase the standard of sport in the region as well, if, if you know what I mean, because competition is one of the things that, are, that obviously is really difficult when you're in a small place compared to the metro area where you've got a lot of athletes you compete against, so you have that ready reckoner all the time. In the regions, a, a talented athlete 
doesn't have that feedback um, all the time, you know. So we're trying to increase the standard of, of, the, of sport in the region as well as the individual athlete. Yeah, I mean, you used a phrase when we were talking before we started this interview, better people, better athletes. So again, you have that community that seems to be there to, I suppose, keep some of these guys in check, but also at the same time, a community that's very proud of their achievements. So you've, you've got a really unique situation in that respect. I suppose it's a case of keeping them grounded and, and then also at the same time making them better all-round human beings. That's certainly my intent. Actually, it's one of my big goals in this whole program is to is to because I believe I firmly believe that you can do both at the same time and um, you know that term's been used many times in different contexts. Um, my, my good friends, the uh, the All Blacks, used it many years ago when Brian Lahore um, was coaching the the '87 World Cup winning team. Said you know better people better people make better All Blacks, and so um, it's an oft-used term. And I'm really firm about trying to instill in the young athletes at the same time as their drive to be successful athletically to be aware of being good people and 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 uh respectful of, of others and and the way they go but also in their own lives you know knowing that i'm going to create a, a life outside of sport at the same time as i'm training really hard um I, I think we see some really good examples of that and then there's some good examples from the midwest you know particularly um well-known ones in the football area you know harry o'brien over at geelong and and Josh Kennedy's a boy from Northampton just up the road here, um, are providing really good role models. And there's a number of really talented athletes that have made their way from from the Midwest region. Uh, when I was at the WA Institute of Sport, we, we had Leisha Cooper in badminton and, and uh, Todd Pearson in swimming. There's just a number of good athletes have come through. We'd like to increase the chances of that happening by giving them you know that greater level of support now that those athletes in those days didn't get. There's been a, a lot of debate, and I did meet someone from the AIS who was trying to do a paper on why it is country Australia produced so many outstanding athletes. One of the reasons they thought was that the children there still walk to school or they get on their bike and go to school, and they are far more just active children because the sort of lifestyle is a more active lifestyle. Do you believe that is probably the case, or what do you think it is? Is it just, again, that maybe there aren't enough kids to play in a junior team, so they get the opportunity to play with adults a little bit earlier? That's, I think unquestionably that would be accepted in the literature and, and in your, anecdotally you look around, I think that's unquestionably one of the factors is that you do have to play up, so you either you kind of have to learn some skills and coping mechanisms um, a bit earlier than, than perhaps if you just stay in your age group the whole way through, so I think that's one of the positives about it. Uh, more active, I think that overall probably are. Um, one of the challenges I'm finding, and I think it's still true that that the, the regional kids um, come with that with that element, that toughness about them. But one of the one of the things that I'm balancing now is um, a lot of a lot of athletes in the regions, and we're no different, uh, play a number of sports. So they will, uh, you know, summer and winter, and and probably two in summer and two in winter. And for those that are talented, it's a challenge to try and get the best out of that side of things because there's a lot of the literature again supports there being a lot of value in you being broadly uh, skill-based and and even psychosocial sort of benefits out of playing a number of sports. But to a point where at a certain stage you do need to start to put more effort into one than another if you want to be successful later on because unquestionably those that you're competing with, say for state team berths, um, will be doing that. So 
I, I, that's one of my great challenges, actually, actually, is to try and find, allow that to continue to happen, but in a, some way, you know, is sort of educating them to, if you want to be a good cricketer, you can still play football, but you you can't spend a whole winter not doing cricket related activities, you know, because you'll just get left behind. So that's that's again, with this this academy's been going nearly two years. It's part of the education process, I think, into the to the community. You so said, I'm certainly don't want to come in and rock the boat and say you should be playing cricket twelve year twelve months to the year, or you'll go to. I, and I don't believe that, but we just have to tweak that to say you can't leave your primary sport alone for four or five months and think that you can still, um, you know, get enough time and learning and develop the way you need to develop in that sport to be competitive with other with the other young athletes around the state. Well, Martin, we thank you for your time. It sounds like a challenging job in a big area, but it also sounds as if you're enjoying every moment of it. <laughs> it's good fun, actually, as it always is. It's it's a, always a great experience, isn't it, seeing young people develop and, and, uh, and sports being a long-time passion. So... The opportunity to work in it is, is something I'm always grateful for. Hello, my name is Joe Cortez, international boxing referee from Las Vegas, Nevada, the boxing capital of the world. Listen to Not the Footy Show. It's a knockout. Check it out. And that was Martin Fitzsimmons from the Midwest Sporting Academy up in Geraldton. And that's heavily supported by the Department of Sport and Recreation and their royalties for regions programs. And also, Marty was telling me off air that the city of Greater Geraldton have been a great supporter getting behind this program and also some of the local businesses. And uh, he did ask me whether I could give them a mention. So I'm going to do that. That's Sports Power, the Geraldton Guardian newspaper and Bendigo Bank, who apparently have been really, really good supporters of the program. And I think it's interesting, John, as he talks about there, trying to keep the young talent in the country and only letting them come to Perth when they're ready, both maybe physically and mentally, but giving them those support structures in the country, which have maybe been lacking in the past. And to me, I think that's a a sort of something that really needs to be applauded. Oh, absolutely. And the other side of it is that kids tend to get uh, more opportunities to play up the levels in the country before they do in the city. If you're in the city and you're 15, you're probably going to be just playing under 15. Whereas in the country, you're probably playing seniors at 15. Well, that's what he touched on, and he reckons that's maybe why you know people do progress and that the country people do step ahead. I find it funny that in the cities now, they're trying. Some sports are trying to stop players playing above their age group, which I think that was where I matured as an athlete was by being given that opportunity. I think in in the modern era, it's a double-edged sword because you want to give those 15, 16 or 17-year-olds the the one in 10 million that's a freak that can do it, that can compete and be successful at that level. You want them coming through, but you also want to protect the others of his age group from professional clubs coming in and just sweeping up every young kid from that particular age group and spitting them through the, the machine, so to speak. And that w- what they're trying to do is, is fantastic, to keep those kids until they are mature. You know, they see one 15-year-old who's good enough to play Premier League and everyone's searching for the next 15-year-old to play Premier League instead of worrying about training up the now 15-year-olds to play Premier League when they're 21. Because let's face it, that's about the age when most people come through into that sort of league, isn't it? They're, they're not 17. They've got a little bit behind them. <laughs> 
You get the odd freak. I also like that the, the phrase that he used, which he said he stole from the All Blacks, but better people, better athletes. So if you build up the person and they have athletic talent, at the same time, if you have a rounded person and then they are an ex- excellent athlete, you are going to have, the two are going to make something incredible. Yeah. And sometimes some of these brilliant athletes, they are still 15 in the head. <laughs> so as, as good on the sporting field as they may be, they're still a kid. Oh, Mr. Rooney would be a prime oh, example absolutely. of that. Absolutely. I mean, he, in some ways, Wayne Rooney's lucky because he could easily have gone downhill from 21. But he hasn't. Uh, he's had his problems, obviously, but he's been able to maintain some sort of level of sporting performance. A lot of these 15-year-olds who get picked up like that disappear by the time they're 21. How many of them have we seen come through Australia playing football? Kids that have been on so-and-so's list. Oh, they're on so-and-so's list. And everybody goes, oh, wow, they must be great. But they haven't got it. And they probably haven't got it in the head, not the body. But it's the same if you look at English football, the amount that get picked for youth internationals and how few of them actually go on to careers in the Premier League. It's quite scary. And I've even done this looking at the AIS football program in Australia. The amount of them that get A-League contracts and then within two years they're back playing in State League football. Then they're, they're nowhere. Very few of them at the moment now are making that step and going in to play in the A-League and then going overseas. So I actually question whether football actually needs an AIS program. Probably not. Uh, the other thing too is in this modern era is you've got, in a lot of sports, salary caps. You've got limited squad size. So these players are being churned over because that's the nature of the beast. Uh, teams don't have the opportunity to take a, a young kid and say, you know what, two years' time he's still going to be rubbish, but in five years' time he's going to be a jet. You've hit, you've hit the nail on the head. And the other thing is coaches are expected to get mm. results immediately now. And they're going to go with experienced players as opposed to going with a youngster and blooding him and giving him a chance. And in a lot of sports here, again, football being a problem, there's not enough games. If you no. look at, you know, Alex Ferguson when he gave the likes of Paul Scholes, Ryan Giggs, Nicky Butt, all of those guys a chance... He had 42 games in a season in which to slip them in, say, against a team that's at the bottom of the table, not against one of the top competitors vying for the title. And but not he all gave at the same time. Yeah, and he gave them those opportunities because he had more games in which to play. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one. Uh, I just want to touch on, John, something I came across the other day. And I just want to really... We used to have, you know, the Gold Award... And I just think this is brilliant. It happened a couple of weeks ago in America, and it was the Adaptive Surfing World Championships. And it was for athletes competing with disabilities. And it is truly amazing. They had four separate categories, uh, prone, upright, assist, and standing. So depending on your disabilities, uh, which surfing event you could go into. And it was a world championship event, and you can really go on and check out um, some of these guys. There's one guy who is lost his amputee from just above the knee, and he's basically created this artificial limb or this prosthetic with a funny foot that he can connect onto his surfboard, and he is standing up surfing uh, pretty much on one leg, and it is just amazing to see the first ever World Championships. And uh, Australia were represented there. South Africa were represented there. It was held in America. But I applaud that. I think it's just fantastic to see 
And, uh, you know, it's, it's great that there's more and more sport now is becoming accessible to people with disabilities. I, I love the sporting, uh, the surfing one too. That's particularly good to see that going on. Because it's, um, it's a pastime as much as anything, isn't it? It's it, a way for people to relax and... Well, one of the competitors, and I can't remember, I think his name was Mike Coots from memory, he lost his leg to a tiger shark. So not only, you know, it was his sort of surfing career, what he thought was probably brought to an end mm. because of that. He's now back out there competing, which is just, I just found it incredible and, and it's just brilliant. Well, the only way we're winning a surfing contest, Ashley, is to have a, a category for uncoordinated. If that ever becomes, uncoordinated becomes a disability, we're laughing. Well, it's like the only diving competition I ever won when I was a teenager <laughs> was for the <laughs> stupidest dive. So there you go. And you were actually being serious when you did it, weren't you? Not really. <laughs> now, uh, one other thing we have to discuss, I think, is uh, the Perth Glory. The A-League is underway. The and The Perth Glory. Perth Glory. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you now. <laughs> Again, you just think uh, desperate times, desperate measures. Creating this cup, the long-distance Derby Cup for their games against Wellington Phoenix. This says to me, man, they are desperate for silverware and they'll do anything because they're not going to win much else. The other thing it says is the FFA are in trouble because when they had the Iron Ore Cup between um, Clive Palmer and Tony Sage, uh, the FFA were very much against it. And now they're apparently sanctioning this ridiculous piece of silverware. Well, you play each other three times in a season, don't you? Yeah. So one game should be in Perth, one game should be in Wellington, and the deciding game for the year can be in Sejuna. Uh, it's about halfway, isn't it? Sejuna? I would have thought so. About there. That would be the way to do it. I th it would be great for tourism in the Northern Territory in South Australia, something like that. But it's absolutely ridiculous in my opinion. Well... They put. I I actually feel sorry for the FFA now. In in a funny part of me, feels sorry for them because they're just pushing so much uphill. It is, and and they're being attacked from all sides, and we've been doing our fair bit of attacking over the last few years. But the forces they these people are fighting against are far huger than a lot of their critics imagine them to be. And for years we've been saying we are playing when it comes to football. We're competing against Chelsea and Manchester United for players. We're not competing against Essendon or Port Adelaide. You know what I mean? It's a completely different world. I don't like all these uh, references to the sport we don't mention you're coming up it's with today. A lot of the time, it's the only way people can get it through their head. That that's They're not in the cloistered little world. They're in a big, big, wide world. And I made that comment a couple of weeks ago. If players want to be paid that the money that they're demanding... Well, go and play in a league that can afford you to play, pay that amount of money to you. And you might become a better player for it. But if you just try and languish in this league that can't afford and, and try and force it, you're going to send them broke. But the other problem, John, and I've spoken to clubs in the UK with contacts I've got, and a lot of the managers of Australian players now are demanding too much money for those players when they're going over to Europe. They're going, we want this. And they're going... Well, we've got a player of an equal standing over here and we don't have to pay him that much. Yeah. So Australians are actually pricing themselves out of the European market. And that's why we're seeing them go to the Middle East and to China where the big bucks are because the agents are getting their cut 
whereas they can't get as big a cut anymore from clubs in Europe because they're not prepared to pay that. How many Australian players have you seen come back from China a better player? I can't think of no. one. No, there wouldn't be. How many have you seen come back from the Middle East a better player? Well, there's not many come back from the Middle East yet. No, but you know, it, it just seems ludicrous. And, okay, you chase the money while you can. That's fine. Go for it, boys. But don't expect me to be just rolling over and handing money out to you. Now, one plus on the football side. Uh, many of our listeners will no doubt have read Michael Lynch, who writes for The Age and uh, the Fairfax Media. His son has been very, very sick. He was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma seven years ago when he was just 16. And he's exhausted all treatment in Australia and is going to have to go to America now to get treatment. It's a ba basically his last roll of the dice, according to Michael, and Joey's going to try and take it. They're having to sell the family home at the moment to foot the bill, which is 800000 Australian dollars, because they can't. The insurance in Australia won't cover it, yep. and the insurance in America, there isn't any, because he's a non-resident, and they want the money up front before the treatment starts. Uh, so that they guarantee that they get paid. Now, this, the actual process is being supported by Canteen because they are lobbying the Australian government to say, we need to have um, test cases like this in Australia. We need to be trying to do this so people don't fly to America. But what I, the reason I'm getting onto this is the Melbourne Victory had a launch uh, a couple of weeks ago. Kevin Muscat stood up and he put the URL up on the big screen at the launch he made everyone there get out their phones, and he goes, I want you to donate now. And he made them all pull it up on their phones. In fact, so many people tried to that it actually melted down the website <laughs> at that particular point. It crashed, but uh, they did raise over $30,000 from that Melbourne Victory launch. Now, if you go to our website, there is a story on that. You can also go to supportjoey.everydayhero.com forward slash au forward slash joey dot us so support joey at everyday hero if you want to try and help uh the ages michael lynch one of the things i suggested in the article was if every fan who's gone through the turnstiles at the a-league gave two dollars in a weekend we would pretty much have more than half the money that they need to get joey to the usa and uh how much does wayne Ree get paid a week uh, well it would be at least... It would be two weeks pay for Wayne? Yeah. That puts... It for football people out there, let that perspective sit with you for a And we should also just say, though, that Tim Cahill uh, gave his whole match fee. Did he from the $6,000 from the last game to the uh, Support Joey Foundation. Is that one against, the one against Jordan? Yes. Hi, I'm Willie Miller, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Our next guest uh, is a man who's been working hard behind the scenes, loves his football club, which happens to be Manchester United, and uh, he's been working behind the scenes to recreate the Perth Manchester United Supporters Club. It folded several years ago. He's resurrected it. They've got plenty of members, and it's now with great pleasure we're going to catch up with Lee Stroud. Lee Stroud, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Good morning, Ashley. Uh, thanks for having us on the show. 
Now, our pleasure. Well, you're in charge of the Manchester United Supporters Club here in Perth. I suppose the most obvious question is, when did you start supporting Manchester United? <laughs> um, I was about seven year, years old when I first supported United. Um, growing up in England, um, I lived on the south coast of England in Bournemouth. And, um, yeah, just a lot of people in our area supported um, first division teams. Um, a lot of people supported Liverpool and Everton and that. And um, I wasn't unaware of uh, Manchester United until they won a FA Cup. And, uh, and being being English, I, I actually liked Brian Robson. So that's where I first really started watching United. I suppose I've got to say, and a lot of people say, you know, most of the Man United supporters come from outside the city of Manchester. You're coming from Bournemouth. Did, did Bournemouth not attract you? I mean, obviously they weren't a Premier League side back then. Well, not not back then. Um, you know, on, on the odd occasion, we'd go and watch the Cherries play. But um, I think, you know, everyone sort of looks to the higher teams. And, um, yeah, United attracted me from the start. Um, and, uh, yeah, the great, exciting football they used to play under um, under Ron Atkinson back in, back in, then, in them days. But um, then Sir Alex took over and, you know, we went from strength to strength. And I was just privileged to, uh, to support such a great club. I don't know when you moved over here, but uh, I moved over in the late 80s and it was very difficult back then to follow teams in England because there was very little coverage. Now, of course, it's a completely different landscape. Yeah, well, we moved here in 1990 and I was 12 years old. And yeah, like you say, it was very, very hard to keep tabs on, on, your, on your teams. Um, you know, there was a bit of coverage on SBS and uh, we used to buy the, uh, the British Football Weekly to try and keep up with uh, what was going on back home. But... Yes, um, now we've got Foxtel, you know, we get more games here in Australia than what they get live on TV. So, you know, we're very, very lucky over here to get, get the, the, you know, the footage that we do there. So. Yeah, we are indeed. Now, the Manchester United Supporters Club, there's been one, I think, in the past, but this is a, a new formed club and, and it's sort of got a lot of ambitions and been set up very differently. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct, actually. Um, the old club collapsed uh, just over 10 years ago now. What with Foxdale coming out and a lot of people, you know, more inclined to stay at home and watch the games, um, you know, so sort of it died and, and drizzled, drizzled out a little bit. Um, and I'm surprised that not a core group of that, that old supporters club didn't stay together. But um, since United last came over to Australia to the Sydney um, BA on tour that they did, um, you know, there was some 1,500 people from Perth travelled over to watch that game. Um, and uh, Steve Long, actually, when he got back, he started a Facebook page, and a lot of us all got onto the Facebook page, and four of us had a meeting at Steve's house. It was myself, Chris Paxton, and Phil Band. Um, so we, we met up and spoke about, you know, what we'd like to do, and um, we formed a committee there. Um, I found a venue at the Mount Henry Tavern, and we started watching games there. Um, back in 2013 and yeah so it's um you know it went from strength to strength we, we had about 140 members that year um some games you know we maybe only had about 13 people turn up but you know it was a, a small core group of people that just wanted to watch United to be honest and what's the membership now and, and I believe you've moved to a, a bigger venue well yeah we sort of out, outgrew the Mount Henry a little bit um, and we wanted to become a little bit more central so we, uh, we're actually now at the Game Sports Bar in Northbridge, which is on Aberdeen Street. And, yeah, we, last season we had about 370 members. Um, already this season we've had five meetings at the Game Sports Bar. And our membership, 
around 272.80. You know, after five games, you know, we should surpass what we had last year. So it's it's just a matter of getting a word out there and making you know more people in Perth, more Manchester United people that you know make make them aware that there is somewhere that they can watch watch games with like-minded fans. So when you're watching those games, is it just Man United fans? Because we do know there is often a rivalry between clubs, and I can just imagine a few sort of Liverpool or Man City fans sneaking in there, and with alcohol, you'd some people might worry there could be a little bit of tension. Well, last season um, we were in the main sports bar, but um, you know we we pushed and pushed and pushed in the off season, and they've uh, actually got a, a room upstairs which we now watch games in, which is exclusively for for members of the Perth Manchester United Supporters Club. So uh, we, you know we run a membership which is twenty dollars, so that gives you a twenty percent discount up in our own room. Um, you know you get a little members pack as well, so it's um, we're, we're sort of away from the other fans. You know obviously you know that there are. Being a sports fan, there are a lot of uh, other supporters that do turn up and watch games there. But um, you know, we're quite a big club and a growing club, and the game sports bar are aware of that. So um, they they kindly give us our own function room upstairs, and yeah, it's uh, it, it's a really good atmosphere. Uh, some of the nights when we're getting 40, 50 to 100 people. So um, yeah, it's yeah, like I said, we're growing strength to strength, and um, we just want more and more people to come down and sort of get get in on the act and. Uh, and sort of enjoy what we've been experiencing for the last two years. And one of the things you're trying to do is grow the club so it can be actually an official Manchester United supporters club, because I believe they put a sort of cap on how, or a limit on how many members you must have before they give you that status. Yes, yes. We need 51 United members. So that's um, 50 of our members that are members to Manchester United. Um, and, you know, a lot of people don't see the benefits of being a one United member in Perth because um, it doesn't give you a great deal of discount, you know, because we're, we're so far away, you know, you might not go back to the UK very often, so you're not going to reap the benefits from doing the museum tour or try and get tickets or, um, you know, even buy merchandise at the mega store there. So, but but for us, you know, to become official, it, it will, um, you know, the boundaries, that, you know, that it will, that, you know, we can attract uh, ex-players to come over and and do speeches and tours and um, you know there's there's lots of things that will help the club grow with us being official. No, I'm sure there are, and uh, obviously you then have a little bit more clout. Now you mentioned ex-players coming over. Obviously, not the footy show is combined with you and Paul Parker is heading to Perth and has a function with your members on the 27th and at the State Library on the 28th. What's the feedback been uh, on him coming down? Well, you know, it's um, Paul Parker, in my eyes, was one of the best right-backs to play for United. Um, he was just a bit unlucky for, for Neville to sort of take over his spot. But, um, yeah, you know, we, we've had a lot of interest. Um, with the tickets are for sale. We're, we're doing a, a special meet and greet upstairs in the sports bar where you'll be able to get your photo taken with Paul. And, and that's an $80 ticket. And we're going to provide some, some drinks and some light snacks. And then he's doing a main event downstairs, which is $35 a ticket, where you'll, you know, you'll ask the questions and I'm sure people will put questions across for him, for him to answer. So it's, it's exciting for, for the club to get, to get an ex-player over. Um, you know, and, and with the help from yourself, um, you know, I'm sure our members are really going to enjoy the night. And that's what the club wants to do, isn't it? Hold more and more of these sort of events so that it is, there is a real benefit to being a member of the supporters club. Yeah, that's it, and and, and benefit 
for being a member and helping us grow and becoming official, which which will make us attract, you know, a, a lot more pro, pro you know, uh, high profile players. Um, you know, even though Paul's won a couple of uh, Premier League medals, he's won an FA Cup and a League Cup. You know, the players that have gone through United have, have won a lot more, and we'd like to attract, you know, even more high profile players. But being official is is, uh, is a big part of getting them over here. One thing that I think some people seem to forget, though, is you, it's all right wanting to bring these guys over, but there are airfares, accommodation, and obviously they want to be paid when they're here, and some people don't seem to understand that. Yeah, the expenses are quite high, um, you know, but if we get the members down to these events, then I'm sure, you know, ticket sales would cover that, and, you know, and, and what great nights, you know, we can have all together with ex-players. It's, you know, for me, it's a win-win situation for everyone. Well, I agree. Well, good work you're doing there, Lee, you and uh, the rest of the committee. We hope you get more members and obviously hope the night with Paul Parker is a huge success. Thank you very much, Ashley. And yeah, cheers for all the help you've done for, for organising this. And um, yeah, we're all looking forward to it. And yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to speak to you again. This is Gary Lineker and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. As I mentioned, Lee Stroud was our guest there from the Perth Manchester United Supporters Club. He's worked really hard to get the Supporters Club up and going and uh, they've got that function, but you have to be a member when Paul Parker is in town on the 28th of this month. Tickets are available for the event at the State Library. You don't have to be a member of the Supporters Club there, but you can still get tickets uh, via oztix.com. .au and uh, just look for the Paul Parker event. I will be emceeing that, interviewing him on the stage, uh, and it would be great if we could see you there. You do get the opportunity to have him sign autographs and have photographs taken with him after the event as well. Now, there is a Liverpool Supporters Club in Perth, isn't there? There is. I wonder is. how many members they've got. I expect they've got quite a few, I think. They meet at the Broken Hill pub in Vic Park. Should find out and put it to the Manchester United Supporters Club because that will immediately push them out into a recruitment drive. <laughs> Just that, anything to get a little bit ahead, I'd say. Ah, oh, look, it, it's tough. I mean, a lot of these supporters clubs, I mean, some of them are dedicated and mm. they go a long time. But uh, it's it's tough nowadays because all the games are on TV and some people would rather just sit back, crack a can of beer and lie on the sofa and watch it. I must admit, there's, it's good being around a group of people watching sport, though, as opposed to being on your own. It's much nicer to be with in company. I must admit, I've been fortunate to go to the Celtic supporters clubs, uh, and they meet at Rosie O'Grady's, and also the uh, Rangers supporters club at one point, and trust me, when they score, it goes crazy. It'd be a great night. The Swindon Tan supporters club, though, uh, we haven't got a venue yet. <laughs> I've got a Swindon beanie, though. Does that make me an official member? Oh, I'm sure you could. <laughs> Anyone who's got any Swindon Town gear should be a member. We uh, can all meet in my backyard. Yeah, Ashley's got plenty of uh, merchandise available. <laughs> <laughs> Even my wife's got Swindon Town earrings. Oh, I'm geez. sad to say she's never worn them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that probably wraps it up for another Not The Footy Show. You, we hope you've enjoyed listening to John and I banter away. Uh, but more importantly, we hope you've enjoyed all our special guests. Remember, you can listen on iTunes and all the previous shows are available there as well. Some fiddler on the pitch, they think it's all over. It is now.
Yep. We'll be back next week.